heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. The Biden administration has been called the government from hell. In just a little more than a year, Biden and his crew have managed to attack and severely damage virtually every pillar of American democracy that has kept us a free nation and leader in the world for over 240 years. Over the next few weeks, we will be facing the primaries, followed by, in November, the 2022 midterm elections. Do you think they'll make a difference? Welcome to this edition of The Voice of a Nation. I'm Alana Friedman, your guest host, sitting in today for Malcolm Out Loud. Malcolm and I have known each other for years, and it's always an honor to be a guest host on his show. Now, we have a lot to cover today, so let's dig right in. If we look back over the last 15 months, which is how long Joe Biden has been sitting in the Oval Office, we can see that he instituted a policy from the beginning of systematically dismantling some of the most basic principles on which our nation was established. We know that because the men who created the United States of America formalized them in what we now call the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. So when Biden began from day one to dismantle the freedoms and responsibilities that were codified at the end of the 18th century in what was supposed to be the fundamental guiding document for the brand new United States of America, he put the entire nation, more than 300 million Americans, at risk of losing everything that they had worked for and fought for and died for for over 200 years. What exactly did he do? He opened up our southern border during a global pandemic to millions of people, and let's call them what they are, illegal immigrants, some with COVID, some carrying fentanyl and other killing drugs, some trafficking women and children, small children, some criminals and sex offenders. Children were separated from their parents, as this is in Biden's day. And in this completely chaotic scene, they had little hope of finding their parents or parents finding their children again. And then this administration organized flights to cities all over the country in the dead of night, and without notifying the states and cities that they were coming, they dumped them in their new homes, whether the cities were ready for them or not, and most were not. What happened to these illegal immigrants after they arrived? The cities had to scramble to find services for them. They were unprepared. And to the horror of the local community, who were equally unprepared, and many of whom were vehemently opposed to this mass illegal immigration invading their cities and absorbing the local humanitarian services at the expense of the local population. 
schools, hospitals, healthcare services, even living space, and so much more. Americans are a generous people, and in many of these communities, they reached out to help the new residents of their communities with food and clothing and even lodging. But America's ability to contain and control its own destiny by controlling its borders was completely lost. President Trump had the right idea. A sovereign state needed to control its borders and decide who can come in and who can't. And so he heeded the Constitution, which in Article 4, Section 4, guarantees that, quote, the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion, unquote. And my friends, what we're facing now is an invasion. And so President Trump built the wall, just like he promised. He said he would, and that's what he did. Had he stayed in office, had he not been sidelined by a highly questionable election, that wall would now be finished and the immigration at our southern border would be under control. We would know who was coming in. We could identify people with COVID or tuberculosis or whooping cough, measles and mumps, and even leprosy. I'm not joking about leprosy. It's a disease we thought was long gone, and it's being brought in by illegal immigrants from poor countries where the disease still exists. Did you know that today in the United States, 85% of the cases of leprosy that are diagnosed here are found among immigrants? It's curable now, but we thought it was gone, and it's not. And now we're seeing outbreaks of other diseases we thought were gone. I mentioned some of them. Measles, whooping cough, mumps, scarlet fever. The diseases we have been vaccinating our children against for years. And the worst part of it is that we don't even know where many of these people are until they show up in the emergency room. Biden's disregard of the impact of uncontrolled illegal immigrants and the hardships that it brings to American citizens is only one area where his administration has disregarded our Constitution. His executive orders mandated mask wearing during the COVID emergency, that's what he called it, the COVID emergency, and one that ensured an equitable, this is a quote, an equitable pandemic response and recovery, unquote. Were these mandates constitutional? The courts are still trying to figure that out. And then, in his executive order frenzy at the beginning of his term, his fourth executive order was aimed at preventing and combating discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation. That's a big deal. I'm not going to go into it now because it's complicated and it's very important. I don't want to give it short shrift, as they say. We'll cover this in another program. Biden also ordered the government to rejoin the World Health Organization, even though we knew that at the beginning of the pandemic, they lied to us. They lied to us about the pandemic, and they lied to us about how serious it was. They lied to us about where the virus came from, and they lied to us about what we should do about it. That organization had more than proved that its director was closely tied to the Chinese President Xi Jinping. 
and was subject to his direction regarding the source of the virus and other issues relating to the way China dealt with this virus. And then Biden also signed an executive order to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. He kept a campaign pledge to get back into the Global Climate Pact on day one. Although this is a country that runs on energy and our oil, gas, and coal production during the Trump years had made America an energy exporting country for the first time. Biden made it a priority to rejoin the global efforts to cut climate damaging fossil fuel emissions. So he did everything possible to shut down our energy production. Only America is an energy glutton. And if we don't produce our own energy, guess what? We have to buy it from somewhere else. And their production standards are likely to be far below ours. When it comes to efficiency and air quality, American standards are among the best. So ironically, instead of improving the green standards of the world, Biden actually made it worse, since our clean production at home will now be replaced by less clean production in other countries. But he is the president of the United States. So why should he have to abide by the constraints on his power by the Constitution and by common sense? You know, the president took an oath on Inauguration Day. He raised his right hand and he put his other hand on the Bible. And he said, I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Now, when he said, to the best of my ability, there is some question about how able he really is, as he seems to be suffering from declining cognitive ability. That's not a crime, but... But anybody suffering from declining cognitive ability should not be sitting in the Oval Office. When Biden precipitously removed our troops from Afghanistan, leaving behind thousands of Americans and Afghan allies, as well as more than $7 billion worth of military equipment, including some 600,000 assault rifles, 2,000 armored vehicles, and even 40 aircraft, including Black Hawk helicopters. It was a huge loss, particularly since it was immediately seized by the Taliban, our enemy for 20 years, who targeted some of those Americans and allies whom Biden left behind. And they used these weapons against them in the most cruel and horrible ways. The Constitution defines treason as, quote, adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort, unquote. At the very least, Biden's decision to withdraw our troops from Afghanistan, leaving our citizens and our allies behind, what was that if not giving aid and comfort to the enemy? Leaving so much state-of-the-art weaponry in the hands of the enemy to use against those people that Biden left behind was certainly giving aid and comfort to the enemy. It should have been grounds for impeachment. But of course, that never happened. Although it happened to Trump twice over far, far less. Well, it's beyond understanding. Where am I going with this? Our leaders are playing a game with two different sets of rules. 
one set of rules for the Democrats and another for the Republicans, one for the liberals and the socialists and the Marxists, and the other for the conservatives. And we're facing what is probably going to be the most important election in American history. People used to say, and I remember it well, that it didn't really matter which candidate they voted for, the Republican or the Democrat, because they're really all pretty much the same. Maybe it was true and maybe it wasn't, but it certainly isn't true today, no more, because this upcoming midterm election will decide the future of our country. Within a few short years, we have seen our country under extreme stress, but we've also seen how the Republicans slash conservatives govern and how the Democrats slash liberals slash socialists slash Marxists, how they govern. From my point of view, there doesn't seem to be much of a contest. In fact, unless you want your government to tell you how to live, what to say, what not to say, what medicines you must take, whether you like it or not, and what the future of our country should be, the choice is pretty clear. Our country is at a major crossroads. The Biden administration has taken us down a road that despises our history, tries to solve its problems with riots and destruction of property and lives, hates law and order, and has broken our borders with impunity. Biden has opened our gates to hordes of people we do not know and cannot control. The first time of reckoning, real reckoning, will be in November, when the midterm elections will decide where the American people stand. If it is like the last election, the one that put Joe Biden in the White House, then we have a lot to worry about. The new movie, 2000 Mules, makes it very clear that the evidence of fraud and corruption in the 2020 election put the wrong man in the Oval Office. And we've been stuck with the mess that Biden's election has created. History is being rewritten in our schools. Our children are being taught that the laws of nature no longer apply, that they can change their gender if they want, without the consent or even the knowledge of their parents, and they teach them this as early as five years old. Life is also defined in racial terms, white privilege, black victims who demand reparations for what happened 200 years ago, and safe spaces so that they don't have to associate with people whose skin is a different color. Criminals get out of jail with no bail in the revolving door that we call law and order and return to the streets to commit the same crimes over and over again. Law and order has crumbled in cities across the country. Violent riots by the left against federal buildings and private property alike have been condoned, while the single January 6th riot in Washington has been fraudulently called insurrection. And while violent rioters and systematic looters have spread mayhem on the streets of Seattle, Chicago, Portland, Oregon, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and when they've been caught, they're generally released, the January 6th rioters still languish in jails under horrendous conditions and without the right to a speedy trial guaranteed by the Constitution more than a year later. The system, in short, has broken down. 
This is what the Biden administration has accomplished in little more than a year. How much more can America take before it ceases to be America? How much longer can we call our country the land of the free and the home of the brave? The primaries are now in process in states across the country. Here's an interesting thing. In 55 races, Donald Trump endorsed a Republican candidate, and every single one of them won, some by a landslide. We have a long way to go, and it will not be easy, because by and large, the Republican plays by the rules. And if the last elections are any example, the Democrats, not so much. These are difficult times we're living in. The Biden inflation, the Biden shortages, the Biden gas crunch. This is a lot to adjust to and a lot to recover from. But in spite of everything, Americans are strong and we will get through this. But it will take a huge and powerful message coming from November's election. No more. This is America and we stand for something. It's time to take our country back. Now, over the past few weeks, I've been talking about the Ukraine-Russian war and China. So after the break, we're going to switch gears and talk to my guest, Claire Lopez, about what's going on in Iran. I'm Alana Friedman, sitting in for Malcolm, and this is The Voice of a Nation. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both on the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. People often ask me, Malcolm, how do we fight the corruption? Robert Frost has said it best. Freedom lies in being bold. Well, for six incredible years, bold is America out loud. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. You've been in that situation. The person next to you is sniffling, or worse yet, (coughs) coughing. Flu, cold, and coronaviruses are everywhere. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to reduce these threats with an invisible mask as an additional layer of protection? Sold by hundreds of pharmacists and medical doctors, our American-made povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray, Cofix RX, lasts for hours deactivating viruses and germs while protecting you from airborne pathogens that make us sick. America Out Loud listeners get 20% off. Use Cofix RX while in large groups, while traveling, or for any other type of high-risk situation as an additional layer of protection to help reduce your likelihood of catching a cold, the flu, or SARS-CoV-2 viruses. Right now, America Out Loud listeners get 20% off of all orders. Click our banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Welcome back to The Voice of a Nation. I'm Alana Friedman, sitting in today for Malcolm Out Loud. 
My guest today is Claire Lopez. Claire is founder and president of Lopez Liberty, and her mission is very straightforward, to alert and to educate Americans on the national security threats facing our country today, from abroad as well as from inside our country, and that includes the Islamic threat from the radical Muslim Brotherhood that is operating within America and their collaborators who are within the ranks of the Marxists and communists in this country. Claire recently wrote an op-ed piece that was published by Newsmax in which she explored Tehran's true nuclear ambitions. Welcome to the show, Claire. And first of all, thank you for joining me today to talk about a subject that has recently been eclipsed in the mainstream media. Now that's not surprising, but what we may be missing is important to our own future. Can you bring us up to date about what is happening in Iran? Thanks, Alana. Very glad to be with you. Claire, tell us a little bit about the article. I think that our listeners would really like to know the thrust of what you were, you were saying in it. Sure. So uh, I have a blog site at Newsmax.com where, if uh, interested, anyone can go and see the previous pieces I've written. But this one that you're talking about, I, uh, I wrote, they published about a week ago. We're in early May 2022 right now. And um, the article was in response to something I saw in the news uh, regarding a former member of the Iranian parliament or the Majlis, and his name is Motahari. And he was being interviewed on an Iranian regime media outlet and told the audience that, yes, well, the Iranian regime has always been going for a nuclear bomb. That was rather openly stated. And again, as I said, it was on an official Iranian state news media outlet. Of course, they, they all are under government control there. So it's, it's hard to think that he would have said something like that without at least acquiescence, if not actual permission, from the authorities to, to say that. And so uh, even though the interview itself was taken down off the Internet the very next day, that it was put up there in the first place and remain for about a day, about 24 hours, uh, seems to me to confirm again my, my hunch that, that this was a permitted statement. Now, why would a, a former, now not currently serving, but, but former member of the Majlis say something like this, admitting out loud what many of us have understood to be the case for a very long time? And it's, it's, it's again my, my analysis or you know, my way of looking at it, my assessment that given how the Iran nuclear talks in Vienna, that is the multi-party talks essentially to get the JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action from July 2015, uh, back into effect. And because those talks have been stalled now for, it's quite some weeks, I, I've lost track how many, but quite a number of weeks, the delegations are all at home. They're not in Vienna now. And, and the sticking point seems to be that the Iranian regime has finally demanded more of the Biden administration than it is willing to allow. And specifically, Tehran wants the, the Biden administration to remove the IRGC, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, 
from uh, the Department of State's foreign terrorist organizations list. And there, finally, after a multitude of concessions, the Biden administration seems to have put its foot down and stopped and said, no, we're not doing that, after quite an outcry, by the way, from media, from congressmen and, and others, in response to you know the leaked word that this might be on the table. That demand has not been granted. And so I am thinking, just to finish this up here real quick, I'm, I'm thinking that this, this media statement by Motahedi may have been permitted by the Iranian regime as some kind of a way of prodding the United States, of, of sort of saying, look, hey, you know, if you don't accede to our demands, all of them, you know, then we really might go for a nuclear bomb. And oh, by the way, we have been going for a nuclear bomb. I, I don't quite <laughs> see how that is supposed to persuade people that the Iranian regime should reactivate uh, this, uh, this uh, agreement, this nuclear JCPOA agreement, uh, which is supposed to stop their progress towards a nuclear bomb. But the, the logic doesn't necessarily have a lot to do with this. But that's my assessment of it. Well, this is the Middle East, after all. So logic probably has very little to do with it, at least from our point of view. Now, the fact that these talks have stalled now, do you think they're going to reactivate or do you think that the Biden administration has actually hit the wall and, and is not going to agree to any more concessions? Well, you know, it has been quite a while that this, the talks have been stalled. As I say, I don't remember quite how many weeks, but it has been weeks. And it is precisely over this one major sticking point, uh, the IRGC on uh, the FTO list. And again, the outcry, the, the pushback from, from all sides, including Democrat members of Congress, ha has been so unanimous for one, but but so so strong the pushback that it may be that the Biden administration will not give in on this. I mean, amazing uh, to think about it. There's something they won't give in on, uh, but it <laughs> looks that way at the moment, and the talks may not resume. What do you think is is going to happen now? It's, it's clear that the the Iranians never showed good faith in these discussions, even under Obama. They just were pushing to get whatever they could, and they had no intention of stopping their nuclear development. So the question that, that I have for you right now is, what do you think is going to happen next? Let's say they, that, that the, the stalled talks actually fall apart, and there is no future for them at the moment. Iran has already been building their nuclear capability. And it, it, everything that I hear is that they're actually weeks away from from uh, actually having a nuclear capability and that now they have to finalize, finish the delivery systems that they've been working on for years. I know they were working with North Korea on developing a multi-warhead delivery system, but it seems as though they are still missing some, some parts of this finished product. So my, my question for you is, what do you think is going to happen next? Well, here's the rest of the article that you were um, kindly citing there, Ilana, the article I published at Newsmax. And uh, the rest of that article is really dedicated to a list of the evidence over the many years, decades really, for the uh, Iranian nuclear weapons program. 
And beginning really with uh, 2002, in August of 2002, when the Iranian uh, Democratic uh, Opposition Group, the uh, National Council of Resistance of Iran, basically blew the lid publicly for the first time off of the Iranian nuclear weapons program, which began under the Ayatollah Khomeini way back in the 1980s before he died. With that evidence, um, there were satellite photographs of places like Natanz and Isfahan and the Kali Electric Plant and, and many more followed after that initial press conference. Uh, the second bit of information that I cite in the article is, is from the IAEA itself. And it puts out, as you may know, a quarterly report from what they call their governor's board about the progress uh, with the Iranian nuclear program. And I cite a, uh, a report, a quarterly report from November 2011. I thought this was the most revealing IAEA report I've ever seen before or since, to tell the truth. And that report discussed in quite a lot of detail what they call possible military dimensions to the Iranian program. Quite frankly, they discussed it and talked about how the Iranians, they had evidence at that time, 2011, this is now 11 years ago, how they had at the IAEA evidence that Iran was working on things like uh, the detonators, um, the multi-point implosion uh, explosions that have to be triggered in order to start the implosion sequence of a nuclear bomb explosion. They were talking about how the Iranians were working on the milling of uranium metal uh, to fashion the two hemispheres that make up the two halves of the pit of a nuclear bomb. They were talking about how the Iranians were, were making advancements in all kinds of areas having to do with the production of nuclear weapons, and there was no other way to put it. That's the only conclusion that they drew. Possible military dimensions in Diplo speak. Uh, the next set of evidence that I talked about comes from uh, the Mossad, the Israeli Mossad's document heist out of uh, Tehran, that Tehran warehouse in January of 2016. Um, and that heist was uh, publicly discussed by then Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, in a press conference in 2018. Uh, the next set of evidence comes from uh, the document heist by the Israeli Mossad, uh, which was able to um, uh, take thousands and thousands of uh, documents out of a Tehran warehouse in January of 2016. I think very most likely with the assistance of the internal vast network of the Iranian opposition group, the Mujahideen Kalk or the MEK. Uh, but in mid uh, 2018 is when then Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu held a press conference uh, to discuss uh, what they had over the last, the previous two years, been able to uh, translate and analyze of those documents and what they found according to uh, his statements that day, uh, was that the Iranian regime uh, had a plan called the Ahmad plan, A-M-A-D, Ahmad plan. And that plan was very specifically about developing nuclear weapons, deliverable nuclear weapons. 
Um, and in any case, those documents, thousands and thousands of pages, plus also computer uh, CD disks and, and uh, flash drives and, and all kinds of other uh, formats for the documents. Anyway, they're in the hands of the Israelis, the IAEA now, and the United States too. And so um, for, for all of those reasons that I document in my Newsmax article, I think it's pretty clear, or it should be, that the regime indeed, as this former Majlis MP stated in the interview, it is clear that, that Iran is driving for a deliverable nuclear weapon. And I, I don't see any reason to think that they don't already have uh, completed warheads. I don't mean a bunch, I mean a, a handful, probably fewer than 10. Uh, but according to international definitions and the IAEA um, definition of a nuclear weapon, it's not a nuclear weapon until the warhead is actually attached to the nose cone of the missiles. Now, we know they already have the missiles because they test them. They have tested them. They, they continue to test them. Uh, they call them uh, space launches to test the ability to launch a satellite into space. So according to international definitions um, and the definition that the IAEA itself uses, um, it's not a nuclear weapon until the warhead is actually attached to the nose cone of a ballistic missile, uh, which we know that Iran has because they've tested them multiple times. And of course, they call those tests part of their space launch program uh, to launch satellites into orbit. But the same booster rockets that can do that can, of course, also deliver a WMD payload, be it nuclear or otherwise. You just talked about the Israeli capture of a huge store of Iranian records relating to their nuclear program. And I know that Israel is feeling the threat of an Iranian nuclear attack at some point not only because they have threatened it many times, but also because it is clear to the Israeli government that Iran is on a path to develop such a weapon, and they appear to be close. How real do you think the threat is? It's clear that Israelis are very concerned about it. Sure, and with good reason. I mean, within the past how many weeks now, maybe going back um, uh, more than a month, six weeks, uh, since before Ramadan, which just ended, the month of Ramadan just completed here in the first week of May. Um, but even prior to the beginning of Ramadan, uh, which started in early April, um, Israel already had been under attack internally. And this is for the first time in many years. Um, internally in its, in its major cities, Jerusalem, the capital, Tel Aviv. And right today again, um, another attack has just taken place in Tel Aviv. We're speaking on May 5 here, 2022. Another stabbing attack has killed three people in a nearby suburb of Tel Aviv. Three more injured, a couple of them critically. So these attacks already had been ramped up. And I think we can be uh, you know, pretty clear that the instigation, the backing, the support for these attacks by Islamic jihadis, and no, they're not extremists. These are mainstream, devout, practicing, faithful Muslims 
because that's what a jihadi is, these attacks are backed and supported, whether through Hamas, whether through Hezbollah, whether through the PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization, the uh, basically defunct Palestinian Authority, whatever it is, backed by Iran, by the Iranian regime. So would Iran perhaps use a demonstrable nuclear weapons capability, perhaps demonstrated through a test at some point, use that capability as defense against any retaliation for this kind of a ramped up intifada, if you will, against Israel on the ground. No, you cannot retaliate against us because we've got nukes. You see what I mean here? The other thing, though, that I, I am very concerned about, and it's, I think, already underway, uh, is the fact that as Iran uh, visibly, demonstrably, drives for a deliverable nuclear weapon, weapons capability, neighboring Sunni states in the Middle East region, for example, those in the Gulf Cooperation Council, I'm thinking of Saudi Arabia, I'm thinking of the United Arab Emirates and others, they're going to want their own nuclear weapons capability because they know that they, as well as Israel, are targets of the Iranian regime. And that indeed is part of the motivation that drew these countries together, whether openly or as, as with Saudi Arabia, I believe, behind the scenes, drew them together in the Abraham Accords. It is concern about a rapidly nuclearizing Iran. We'll continue this conversation with Claire Lopez right after the break. I'm Alana Friedman, sitting in for Malcolm, and this is The Voice of a Nation. This is Dr. Peter McCullough. Do you know there's no other condition that I'm aware of where vitamins and supplements make such a big difference than COVID-19? We have a, an abundance of data that we need to be replete with a variety of micronutrients, and that includes vitamins, minerals, and other substances our bodies need. I rely on Healthy Cell Super Boost. That's Immune Super Boost. It's a, a gel pack that can be taken every day. I like to do it before I exercise and before I go out. It's a wonderful supplement. It gives me the Immune Super Boost that I need. Go to HealthyCell.com, use the promotional code OUTLOUD, and get a discount on your first order. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 120 times per month. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains full effective doses of science-backed nutrients, like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day, pill-free, ultra-absorption ingestible gel. It tastes great, comes in a convenient squeeze gel pack, and it's more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com. H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. The silent majority has spoken. We say, let the silent voices be heard. You can be the voice of change. 
contact our producer at liberty at americaoutloud.com liberty at americaoutloud.com welcome back to the voice of a nation i'm alana friedman sitting in for malcolm today and i'm talking to claire lopez about iran and the threat that iran poses to the world before the break we were discussing Iran's nuclear ambitions. But let's move to a wider screen now and look at Iran as a Muslim country, but not an Arab country, and its relationship to the Arab countries of the Middle East and beyond. Claire, can you tell us about how the Arab countries are dealing with the threat that Iran poses even to them? As we know, of course, Saudi Arabia long has had some kind of an arrangement with Pakistan. We'll recall back in the year 2003, the year that our president, George W. Bush, went in and took out Saddam Hussein, who yes, absolutely needed to go, uh, but without consideration for the way that was upsetting, busting the balance of power in the Middle East, uh, rough though it was, uh, balance of power between the Sunnis and the Shiites by leaving the Iranian regime standing while taking out its number one balance opponent, Saddam Hussein and the Sunnis, again, needed to go, had weapons of mass destruction, invaded his neighbors multiple times, harboring Al-Qaeda on Iraqi territory, paying for suicide bombers against uh, the Israeli people, all that. But the Saudis looked at that and saw the balance of power busted. That's when then Crown Prince, later King, now deceased, Abdullah, led a delegation in 2003 to Islamabad to talk with A.Q. Khan, sometimes called the father of the Pakistani bomb. Out of that agreement came some sort of an arrangement for Saudi Arabia to depend on nuclear assistance of some kind or another from Pakistan. And we don't actually know what kind of assistance exactly. Um, but whatever it is, was meant as a backup, as a, as a defense, as a way to defend themselves, offset the threat from uh, the crazy Persian Shiites. Okay, well that, that gives a very comprehensive picture. This concern with the Middle East and all of the players, there are so many of them, and each one has a somewhat different perspective and set of priorities from the others. You're right about the Abraham Accords. They are helping to overcome some of these confusion about where the, the priorities should be. And I think if we're talking about Iran, for example, the priorities are very clear. The, the, the countries that are right opposite Iran are very close targets. And in fact, they have been attacked more than once. So we, we're talking about a very complicated situation. The Abraham Accords are, in my opinion, a brilliant new approach to bringing the Arab countries in the region to the table with Israel. They enabled Israel to overcome the stalemate of the so-called peace talks with the Palestinians, and it created an environment in which Israel could build new relationships with Muslim nations. 
These relationships are now being built on a shared concern for security as well as a desire to enjoy the enhanced economic benefits of developing commercial relationships. And so, so far, they appear to have succeeded. What I tried to do on this program is to create a well-rounded discussion that covers the, the same problem from different perspectives. You've given us a good perspective, a well-rounded perspective of some of the really important issues that we need to understand better. I want to thank you very, very much for giving your time for this. I know you're very busy, but I think you've managed to shed some real light on some of the issues that we really haven't been paying too much attention to lately. This has been very constructive and, and it's a very important part of what I'm trying to do, which is to inform people of what is going on out there when the news isn't covering it. So thank you for that. And I look forward to, to speaking to you again, you know, in the future and enlarging on this discussion. Absolutely. Be glad to come back and thank you again so much for having me. You're very, very welcome, Claire. I started the program today talking about President Joe Biden and how much damage his administration has done to this country. And so maybe it is appropriate to circle back, as Jen Psaki would say, and end the program with a quick look at some of the people he has appointed to high positions who are totally inappropriate for the positions they now or will soon hold. Perhaps the most egregious was his appointment of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson to become the 116th Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. The President made it very clear from the very beginning that when he appointed a new justice, it would be a black woman. This is a decision about the person who will sit on the highest court in the land and contribute to the binding decisions that could affect all Americans throughout the country for a very long time. What should the criteria for selecting a candidate for this bench be? A thorough knowledge of the Constitution and the history of the court as it applied the Constitution to current day issues an understanding of the complexities of applying constitutional law that were defined 240 years ago and applying them in modern 21st century America. And yet, these were not the first considerations of our president, no. Instead, he decided that the most important consideration was her race, the color of her skin, and her gender. This is such an affront to the spirit of the law and to the guidance of our Constitution that, to be quite honest, it left me speechless. How would you even imagine such a thing? How do you even begin to address such a blatant disregard of the power of our founding documents and the importance of the Supreme Court? And then, to make matters worse, when Judge Jackson came to the Senate to be questioned at her confirmation hearings, she couldn't answer some basic questions. 
When Senator Chuck Grassley asked her whether she had a judicial philosophy, she couldn't answer it. And if, if she didn't have one, he said, did she think that not having a judicial philosophy was improper? In her answer, she talked about her procedures over her career, but she didn't answer the question. And then, when she was asked to define what a woman is, she deferred to scientific expert. When Senator Marsha Blackburn asked her to define woman, she replied, I can't. I'm not a biologist. And Blackburn responded, the meaning of the word woman is so unclear and controversial that you can't give me a definition? Well, apparently she could not, or at least she refused to. And it, it strikes me as being very strange because even a teenage biology student knows that you can simply define woman as someone having two X chromosomes as opposed to a man who has only one. If a Supreme Court justice cannot define what is a woman, how can she rule on issues like abortion, transgender women in women's private spaces like locker rooms and ladies' rooms, or on transgender women competing against biological women in competitive sports? It is difficult to see how Kitenji Jackson is in any way qualified to sit on the Supreme Court. And I believe that the outcome, as it plays out over the years, will be embarrassing to the courts at best and devastating to the future of the court at worst. Selecting a Supreme Court justice based on the color of her skin or on her gender is wrong on so many levels and it's a presidential decision that I believe we may all live to regret. The decision by Joe Biden to stop U.S. production and sale of energy has already hurt Americans in a whole list of ways. But first among them is the economy, which is close to being in freefall. The price of food and just about every other consumer product has risen astronomically. And the people this hurts the people this hurts the most are those who can least afford it. Mortgage rates have nearly doubled. The price of food and staples in the store, if the shelves are not already bare, have gone up significantly. And the price of gas is now over $5 a gallon in most places around the country. The cost of diesel is even higher. And it now costs a trucker more than $1,000 every time he needs to fill his tank on a cross-country haul. Many of these truckers that we see on the highways drive their own trucks, and the money for diesel comes right out of their pocket, out of whatever profits they may hope to have. In what world is this a good idea? And what is Joe Biden thinking when he puts the biggest financial burden on the poor the beleaguered middle class, and the people who bring us food and everything else that we need that comes from places that are 
far from where we live. Maybe the biggest decision, and the one that in the end will hurt us the most, that Joe Biden has signed off on since January 20th, 2021, maybe the biggest and most hurtful decision was to open our southern border. Now, I talked about it earlier, and I won't belabor the point, but even as millions of illegal immigrants pour into our country and into our cities, another of Joe Biden's harebrained ideas is his plan to cancel what is called Title 42. That prohibits anyone from entering the country when there is, quote, serious danger to the introduction of a communicable disease into the United States, unquote. America has just been through two horrible years of pandemic and is just starting to recover, yet we are allowing huge numbers of illegal immigrants, millions, into our country without testing them. Or even if we test them and we find out whether or not they have COVID, it doesn't matter because we let them go anyway. A former senior border patrol officer has estimated that the Biden administration has placed some 40,000 illegal immigrants infected with coronavirus into American cities in his program of catch and transport into the heart of America. And over 20% of unaccompanied minors and 18% of family units who recently crossed the U.S.-Mexico border have tested positive for COVID-19 before being released from U.S. Customs and Border Protection custody. What kind of craziness is this? What are we doing to ourselves? We, on the one hand, have been confining people to their homes in quarantine. We've closed our schools. We've insisted that babies wear masks. We have made it impossible for people to live normal lives and have really encouraged a kind of aggression that I don't think we have ever seen in this country before so universally because the government knows how we should live our lives. But at the same time, they take millions of people and allow them into our cities, not only allow them in, but they take them there. They transport them at no cost. What kind of crazy country are we living in where the right hand and the left hand are doing opposites and hurting every American in the process? I grew up in a small city on the east coast of America, and I was taught to be proud of America, proud to be an American. In school, we learned about George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and we were taught to be proud about how they had helped to make America great. We stood tall for our flag, and we pledged allegiance to our country, one nation under God, every day at the start of the school day. Today, our children disdain our history. They don't learn about the Civil War or the Second World War, or the First World War for that matter. To them, the flag is a trigger. It's a symbol of everything America has done wrong in its history. George Washington was a slave owner, cancel him. Slavery was a stain on white people, 
and all white people must carry that stain all their lives, even though they had nothing to do with what happened 200 years ago. What has happened to America? Ronald Reagan said this, and we would be wise to heed his words. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on to them to do the same. Or one day, we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. America is ours to protect, to fight for, to protect our freedom, or it is ours to lose. Benjamin Franklin said that we have a republic. It was a brand new concept. We have a republic, he said, if we can keep it. Well, we've just about run out of time and we've covered a lot of territory. The world is a complicated place and it's not getting any simpler. But we live in a wonderful country and it is still the best place on earth if we can keep it. So if you live in a state with a primary coming up, be sure to vote. Our lives depend on it. You've been listening to The Voice of a Nation. I'm Alana Friedman, sitting in for Malcolm Out Loud. I want to thank our guest, Claire Lopez, and I want to thank you all for spending this hour with me. This has been The Voice of a Nation on the America Out Loud Network.